I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to discuss the ongoing battle between Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner, whose feud not only split New Order on several occasions, but also ran through their prior band, Joy Division. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about, like, rivalries within bands in this show, but in this episode, we're not talking about just one, but two crucial post-punk bands. It would be like if John Lennon and Paul McCartney left the Beatles together and then they formed an even more successful band after that, which I guess makes Stephen Morris like the Ringo in this scenario, I guess. But after working so closely together for the better part of 30 years, these guys came to hate each other with a passion that is extreme. I mean, even for this show. I mean, like in the history of Rivals, I think it's possible that no beef has been quite as intense as this one. Would you say? Yeah, this is white hot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a blood feud. (laughs) He's taking this one to the grave, Peter Hook is. (laughs) So without further ado, let's get into this mess. As with some of the best of these feuds, it starts in childhood. Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner first crossed paths as grammar school students in Salford, England. And they were drawn together, not really by music, but by their love of scooters, which I didn't realize, but it actually played a role in their first falling out. Uh, according to Peter Hook's hilarious and vindictive memoir, Unknown <laughs> Pleasures. And I would like to say right here, Peter Hook has written probably 1,500 pages uh, over the course of three books, just slagging off Bernard Sumner for most of this. And uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I highly recommend all three of his books. But- 1,500 words. 1,500 words is still not enough. I, you know, he's given us so much, and, I, and I'm still hungry for more. Oh, it's so good. But in in Unknown Pleasures, the first of his three memoirs, he talks about how he and Bernie were on a scooter trip in southern France, and one of their friends 
their scooter broke down. And so they needed to pull some money to get the guy's scooter fixed to get back home. And, and Hookie writes, let's just say when it came to helping out, Barney wasn't very helpful. After that, I couldn't really look at him the same way. <laughs> From then on, Which, they were ruined after that. You know, it's hilarious to me. This like scooter incident is like the inciting incident in their whole relationship. And I love how when the book he refers to him as Barney, because I guess he just hates the nickname <laughs> Barney. So all through the book, he only refers to him as Barney. That That's the level of petty we're dealing with for the rest of this episode. So, you know, like, buckle up. Yeah, I'm just going to say that, like, you know, from the outset that I have a strong bias in, fa- in favor of Peter Hook. I think he's hilarious. I love seeing interviews with him. And I have to say that, too, as a musician, his bass playing is to me, like the distinctive sound of certainly New Order and maybe even Joy Division, I guess, along with Ian Curtis's voice, of course. I mean, whenever I think about people ripping off New Order, I just think of that, you know, very trebly melodic bass that Peter Hook brings to the table. So, yeah, I, I'm i going to be stumping for him, even though I think as we'll see as this episode unfolds, he can also be a major pain in the butt. Right. I mean, he kind of has David Crosby syndrome where he's he's hilarious and so charismatic, and in interviews, he's just a quote machine, and he's so self-deprecating that it almost, like, it sort of masks the fact that he's kind of a dick and has been throughout this story, but you love him anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So the real big bang of Joy Division is on June 4th, 1976, when both uh, Bernie and Hookie attend the Sex Pistols' legendary gig at the Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall, which is sort of like been mythologized as like the big bang of the Manchester music scene. It inspired so many teens and tweens to start bands. And Hook and Sumner were among them. I guess the next day, uh, Peter Hook borrowed money from his mom to buy a bass, and and they were off. He and Bernie got together as a duo and placed an ad in a local music paper, which got Ian Curtis into the mix. And then uh, drummer Stephen Morris came later. But I love, have you heard the story of their first drummer? No, I don't think I have. Oh, it's so good. He was this like London punk guy. Uh, I think his name was Steve Brotherdale and he was in a band called Panic. And he was like proper hard London punk, like scary dude. And that wasn't really gelling. It wasn't really working, but they were too afraid to fire him. So they were driving their like band van home and they pulled over and said, oh man, Steve, can you get out? I think we got a flat tire. Can you go check it out? So he gets out of the van and looks at the tire and they just speed off and leave him there. (laughs) And I guess that was how they they fired this guy because they were too afraid to do it any other way. So they eventually get Stephen Morris, who is significantly less intimidating, I would imagine, into the band. And um, they consider several band names. My favorite was Stiff Kittens, but uh, they eventually went with Warsaw after the David Bowie song on Low, Warsaw. And um, and they were playing together in an event and for a while, I think a couple months, when they learned that there was a, a London man called the Warsaw Pact. So it was like, you know, the Spinal Tap originals, new originals thing. They had to get a new name. And so to avoid confusion with this other band, Warsaw Pact, they chose the name Joy Division, which is not a very uplifting name. Uh, It is the name for the uh, sexual slavery wing of the Nazi concentration camp. So not a very uplifting name. It's not an uplifting name if you know the origin story. But I have to say that I think it's like one of the best band names in rock history, especially because of the irony when you know what they sound like. It's like there's not much joy (laughs) in Joy Division, but... (laughs) It's but like I, people have talked about this. Like the great music, uh, British music journalist Paul Morley has said that like when he heard the name Joy Division, it just seemed like a band that you had already loved for ten years. You know, there was just something instantly iconic about that. And I think it rolls into the first Joy Division record, which of course is Unknown Pleasures, comes out in 1979. A brilliant record, 
Uh, I think one of the best debut albums ever made. I think if you listen to any post-punk band that has come out in the past 40 years, they are in some way ripping off that record. I mean, it's just been incredibly influential. Although, in a way, I feel like the album cover at this point is more famous than the album itself. Like, especially as a t-shirt, you see it everywhere. And oh, yeah. I think the album cover, along with the band name, it just added to the sense of people hearing this band, seeing this band, and feeling like, wow, they're already this kind of fully formed entity that has, like, a perfect sound and a complete aesthetic, like, right out of the gate. Um, the thing about that first record is that they made it pretty quickly. I think it was over the course of three weekends that they were able to, you know, bash those tracks out. And, you know, in subsequent years, Peter Hook would always complain about how long it would take New Order to make albums. I think, like, by the time they get to, like, Waiting for the Sirens Call, that record took, like, three years to make, you know, versus three weekends for unknown pleasures. And I think because they work so quickly, Peter Hook and, and Bernard Sumner, they didn't really have time to beef at that time. You know, they were young, they were hungry, they were learning how to make records. It really wasn't until Closer, uh, the second Joy Division record, and of course the last, uh, which came out in 1980, shortly after Ian Curtis's death, that you started to see some conflicts. And, and it really becomes, I think, the core conflicts that are going to haunt these guys for the rest of their partnership. It really kind of comes down to two things. Like one is musical differences that I think, especially as we get in a new order, Bernard Sumner is going to be pulling them away from being a straightforward rock band, whereas Peter Hook is going to want to stay in that camp. So that's a problem. The second problem, which I think we've already seen, is that these guys have different personalities. Bernard Sumner seems like a pretty uh, quiet, introspective, I think relatively nice guy. I mean, it seems like he's pretty polite and would be nice to know, whereas Peter Hook is this loudmouth, brash, hilarious, but maybe difficult person to deal with. And it just seems like that was already coming into play. And like, I mean, have you heard that story about like how there were two essentially opposing camps in this band, like in Joy Division, like while they were making Closer? Yeah, their manager rented them two apartments and Hook was in one and he headed up sort of the loud bastard brigade. And Bernie was in the other with Ian Sumner and sort of the more quiet, the cultural flat, they sort of like <laughs> called themselves. Right. So of course- Hook's team loved to just tool on the cultural flat, you know, to their heart's content. I mean, there were all these stories about, like, you know, Hook taking, like, Ann Curtis's girlfriend's, like, panties and stuff and, like, you know, like, like stringing them up. Like, things like that. Like, real, like, summer camp stuff. Yeah, and these guys were young at the time. I mean, I think they were only, what, like— 22, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So they were, like, the age of college kids, and, like, Peter Hook was acting like a college kid. <laughs> but Bernard Sumner was already— you know, not into that sort of thing. And, and and Ian Curtis was also in that camp. And it feels like, you know, for Bernard Sumner, maybe already at this point, he was thinking that, you know, like, I'm the serious guy. Like, I'm the one who maybe has, like, a better idea of, like, the big picture creative direction that we're going to go in. And Peter Hook, you know, yeah, he's a good bass player, but he's sort of a buffoon, you know. So I've got to deal with this guy. You know, and, and and try to have patience with him. Whereas I think Peter Hook, from his perspective, he's looking at Bernard Sumner as what, like, I guess being a killjoy in a way, or like not being a person who's go, going to embrace being in a successful rock band and is going to kind of pull them away from the rock and roll path towards, you know, maybe more of like a sterile sound, at least in his mind. Yeah, I always got the idea that, that Hook always looked at Bernie and thinking like, why are you here? Like, why are you, why do you want to be in a rock band? Like, what is this? Like, you don't, and this comes up again and again on like later years when 
Bernard doesn't want to tour and things like that. Hook's just kind of like, well, what, do, what did you get in this for? What did you think this was all about? Like, getting out and play. I know, I, I often wondered what, what Bernie's relationship with Ian was like. Because, I mean, you read about it in books and stuff, but of course, after Ian's death, he was just sort of, you know, sanctified. And, uh, yeah, I often wondered if if Bernie, the, sort of the, the weird power dynamic that he had with Hook, if he felt that in any way with Ian, too, before he died. Yeah, I mean, it, again, like you said, it's so hard to analyze that stuff because, one, Joy Division wasn't together very long. And, two, like, Ian Curtis has been this saintly figure for so long. I mean, much yeah. longer than he was alive. And it, it's hard to talk about him as being a human being. I mean, it's it, one thing that's interesting with Ian Curtis in the, you know, the Sumner Hook dynamic is that I know at least Hook has talked about how he felt like Ian Curtis kept uh, like sort of a, a wrap on any tensions that might have existed between them. That like when Ian Curtis was around, like he was the unquestioned leader, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And then when, when Ian died, Ian died on May 18th, 1980, the, on the eve of the band's first U.S. tour, and he died by suicide attributed to depression and worsening epilepsy and just collapsing marriage. And yeah, like you said, there's been a lot of speculation on whether or not the group would have been slightly less tumultuous than New Order. You know, if, if, if Ian had lived, he would have sort of been able, there wouldn't have been that power vacuum that, that Hook and Bernie sort of rushed in to try to fill over the next, you know, decade, 20 years. Yeah, what's striking to me is that, you know, Ian Curtis, he dies right before they put out Closer, and I guess they had played some of those Closer songs before the album came out. Like, if you listen to that uh, posthumous record still, where there's like a bunch of live performances on there, they're playing songs like Atrocity Exhibition and Isolation and, and, and other songs that were on Closer. But they never toured behind it. And it just seems like, you know, Ian Curtis died. You know, they were going to do an American tour. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen now. And it's like they just had to close the door on Closer and become this new band. And I just wonder, you know, it seems like in some ways maybe Ian Curtis exhibited some control over those guys even after he died because they had to focus mm. on just carrying on and, and in a way sort of burying their grief. And that was such an elephant in the room for so long that maybe they didn't have time to really go after each other in the early years of New Order until they became successful. Then, of course, it all starts to go to hell. Yeah, it's crazy to think. I mean, I feel like every psychologist now would say this is what you don't do. But if, if they started writing New Order songs like, you know, a week after Ian Curtis's death inquest, things like that. I think Peter Hook said in this book that he wrote the baseline, The Dreams Never End, like, you know, barely like days after the funeral. Uh, and the, the band's first single, Ceremony, was one of the last Joy Division songs. It was been composed by Ian Curtis. He wrote the lyrics. And uh, yeah, I, I felt that they, they really had an awkward relationship with their legacy. I think Hook was more apt to be the one to want to play Joy Division songs in early New Order, whereas Bernie, he kind of took the Paul McCartney and Wings approach and said, you know what? No, I'm doing this now. We're going to start completely fresh. And I think there was some tension between them for that off the bat, too. So it really started them off on the wrong foot, just regardless of all their past uh, relationship issues. Yeah, it's interesting when you hear, like, early New Order songs because it really does sound like Joy Division or maybe a more danceable version of Joy Division. Like, you can easily imagine Ian Curtis singing on a lot of the songs on the first New Order album, Movement, which came out in 1981. But I think pretty soon after that, as they start to evolve, you can hear the differences between those groups. It seems like it becomes pretty pronounced fairly quickly. Yeah, and like you said, the sonic differences in addition to all the personality clashes are really what were driving uh, Hook and, and Sumner apart. 
Uh, and Hook writes in his book, you know, this was around the time when we started having to spend all this time programming sequencers and synths and stuff, and it was boring. I, he said, why can't we just fucking play? We're a band. We've written hundreds of fantastic songs. Can't we just play? The other guys were busy reinventing pop. Me, I liked pop just fine the way it was. <laughs> I think that sums it up. And they have these musical differences going on, and of course, there's also the personality clashes happening. And I wonder, like, if... It ultimately came down to Peter Hook wanting to be a rock star and Bernie not really feeling that or feeling some ambivalence about that. Uh, because it seems like, you know, New Order not touring becomes a recurring problem that becomes more pronounced as the band progresses. That, like, Peter Hook wants to be this guy on the road. He wants to be partying in hotel rooms. He wants to be doing blow with groupies, living the whole life. And Sumner really doesn't. And, you know, he writes in his book, Chapter and Verse, which... Is it fair to say that he only wrote that because uh, Peter Hook wrote like 1,500 words on, on their musical <laughs> legacy and he felt like he had to respond? Oh, yeah, he did defend himself. And then Hook went in some, I think he went in Billboard and basically did like a point-by-point point rebuttal of Bernie's book after that, too. Yeah, it's like Peter Hook, so yeah, it was basically a big defense book. Peter Hook couldn't even let Sumner have his book. It's like, no, I've already written, I, I've written like 1,500 words, but I'm going to write even more words in Billboard to further refute like what... Sumner is saying, but like one of the things he he writes about Sumner in his book chapter and verse is just this idea that like he felt that there was a, a delineation between his public and private life, and that he wanted to have a private life away from the band, and you know just kind of live a quiet you know sort of family existence. I think, and then yeah, Peter Hook, who was just I think feeling increasingly frustrated that he can't just be on the road all the time and 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 being this like you know conquering rock band. Yeah, I think he thought he was being like told what to do by the weakest-willed member of the group. I mean, he, I think in his own book, he even talks about how Bernie got the lead vocal part because initially when they first were recording the first couple New Order songs, I guess Stephen, Hook, and Bernie all recorded just the vocal lines together and it was just going to be a blend of all three singing. And then Bernie said, wait, 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 I want to I want to try it again. So they wiped all the tracks and then they ended up just leaving his voice on there. So he basically by just default got the uh, the lead singer part. And then later on, is this, we'll see this again and again. He's just sort of like, he took on the perspective of like, well, I'm the lead singer. You can't really get rid of me. Everybody else is, is dispensable. And this would come up when they would do their, their side projects later on. Hook kind of felt like, well, no, we're, we're, we're a band. We're not, but you know, it's lead singer syndrome. It's a classic, classic problem. I mean, there is this weird thing with Peter Hook where, like you said, he describes Sumner as being the weakest willed member of the band. And yet in the same breath, he'll talk about him being this prima donna, who is insisting on everything going his way. In one of his books, I think it's the New Order book, uh, Substance, he talks about how, like, at some point in the mid-'80s, Sumner would never show up to anything on time. That became his big power move to show that he was the one in charge. So there is this weird thing where Hook is complaining that, like, Sumner's taking all the control, but then also feeling like, well, he's also not the best leader. You know, there is sort of like a willful uh, sort of, giving up a responsibility in a way by Peter Hook, I feel like, in these situations. Yeah, I mean, speaking of lack of leadership, I, I just want to point out that New Order is probably famously one of the, like, you know, most ripped off bands financially <laughs> of all time. Like, they're just a gigantic money pit. I mean, the, the most famous example involves their their song Blue Monday, which had this elaborate uh, cover for the 12-inch sleeve, I think by Peter Saville. And somehow the finances of it worked out that for every copy sold, the band lost five pence and it became the best-selling 12-inch single ever. So the band lost all this money 
on their biggest hit. Just and then of course they also go into the 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 hacienda, the hacienda club in Manchester, which was just a gigantic money pit. I think at one point was losing ten thousand pounds a week. And so all their touring revenue just went to paying off that debt. So in addition to, you know, personality clashes, musical differences, they also had this massive financial drain going on, too, at this time. Yeah, just snatching defeat from the jaws of victory over and over again, I feel like, <laughs> with, with, with New Order. Yeah, it's insane to me, like the Hacienda, that they would essentially be making records in order to fund a nightclub. And I guess also their record label. But, you know, we're going to see this as this episode unfolds. That, like, New Order is, like, becoming this big band, and yet they can't fully enjoy the spoils of their success because they're paying for a nightclub, which, again, just seems insane to me. Like, like what a terrible investment. Like, why would you just cut your losses at some point? I mean, that would be the smart business thing to do. But clearly, you know, and we could talk about the Hacienda in an entirely different episode. I mean, if you haven't seen 24 hour party people, which if I don't know what you're doing, listening to this episode, if you haven't seen that movie, I mean, come on. Yeah. Pause and put that on. Exactly. They talk about that nightclub uh, in that film. I think being like an idea as much as a business, like there was just something sort of utopian maybe about what that club represented and also factory records as well. And like new order was a big part of that, but yeah, it's, it's just insane that they were doing that. And you know, new order, they're progressing as they get into the mid eighties and they're, and they're, turning out just like a series of just like perfect pop singles. And and they're really going to start hitting, I think, their peak around the time that they release Brotherhood in 1986. And like, this is like one of the most fascinating New Order albums to me because this thing that we're talking about, the rock side that they have that derives from Joy Division and this dance music side that is becoming a bigger part of what they're doing that it seems like Sumner was the one really driving that. And quite frankly, you know, as much as I am a Peter Hook partisan, you got to give Sumner his props for recognizing that this was the sound of the 80s and that they were going to be a more important band if they could find a way to integrate these sounds, right? I mean, isn't that, like, like as much as I love Peter Hook, in a way you have to say that Sumner was right in his instincts to be pushing new order in this direction. Yeah, and they, they were successful at it, too. I mean, not only thinking about it just being progressive from a musical standpoint, but it worked. I mean, Blue Monday was the biggest 12-inch selling of all time. I mean, this was something that was in their best interest, a, a rare canny financial move to actually pursue the sound as well. But yeah, I think Hook just viewed it as veering too far from their roots, you know, at that Sex Pistols gig. And he also, he felt that, you know, he was primarily the main acoustic player in the band and that Bernie was quite literally limiting him, turning him down. I guess during the recording of Brotherhood, he talked about how, like, he said that Bernie and the engineer had some kind of device put on his bass that they could kind of turn down. And he felt, you know, muzzled, basically. I love that stage in a band's career when they start arguing about, like, the levels of each band member in the studio. Like, <laughs> turn the vocals down, turn your bass down, you know, turn this up. That's always a great sign. You know, those ego battles over, you know, being manifested in in the mix of a record, but like with Brotherhood, the uh, the clash between Hook and Sumner just seems more stark than it ever would be because on side one you essentially have a rock record, and on side two you have the dance record. So it, it's just split pretty evenly between those two sides, and of course the big hit from that record ends up being on the dance side, which is Bizarre Love Triangle, that becomes a huge defining hit for. New Order. And then there's also the single True Faith, which comes out of this period. It ends up being released on the album uh, Substance, the singles compilation that ends up really breaking them in America 
And I have to say that True Faith, to me, like if I were to make a list of perfect pop songs, True Faith would be on the list. Like, I just think it's an incredible song. I mean, don't you? Oh, yeah. And I think actually Hook would at least later take credit for it. I don't know how much that's true. But yeah, I mean, it's funny that one of the best dance songs they made, I think, came from him primarily. Well, because he would also talk about how, didn't he say something about how he felt like it was a like a Pet Shop Boys ripoff and like not a very good one? Yeah, yeah. He hated Neil Tennant. He hated the Pet Shop Boys. He would all, whenever he wanted to like, come up with a reference for like, you know, disposable electro late 80s pop. He would always name drop, name check the uh, the Pet Shop Boys. Which I think is also an interesting comparison because the, at this time they're also working with Stephen Haig, who was the producer of the early Pet Shop Boys hits like West End Girls. And I think that's why New Order ended up working with him. So I'm sure that was like also part of his resentment with, with True Faith that they were working with the same producer as the Pet Shop Boys. But again, it's a perfect pop song. And, you know, I always laugh like one of my favorite videos of of New Order is them playing on Top of the Pops in 1987, uh, and they're performing True Faith, and Peter Hook is wearing a leather jacket and he's playing his bass like around his ankles, like he looks like a member <laughs> of Japan Droids, you know, not a member of this like synth pop group. And I don't know, to me that just signifies the tension in the band because even when they're playing this song, that I think for a lot of people is one of the defining examples of like great 80s synth pop it's like peter hook still had to look like he was playing in a punk band didn't he later say in one of his books that like one of his shoulders or one of his arms is like significantly longer than the other from like years of playing his bass that low oh like that's tough to do yeah i would imagine i mean yeah it's very low and, and again it, it it reminds me of like like a sid vicious or like a duff mckagan yeah. type you know bass stance or uh you know like a dd ramon type thing but yeah, he had to wave that flag even when musically they were clearly moving away from those roots. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Substance takes off in the U.S. They go on their first real big American tour. And, uh, and and Bernie seems to hate every minute of it. I mean, this is really when he starts pulling. I mean, the the, the diva card in, in Peter's book, uh, he says, you know, he would ask for these lengthy sound checks and then not show up till the very end. And he would say, you know, it was fine because every given situation was improved by Barney's absence. So we weren't bothered one bit. Everybody had had bad memories of sound checks where Twato, his pet name for Bernie, would turn up and ruin it by sulking, stamping about, moaning, and putting everyone on edge. So my favorite story from this tour also is I guess Sumner demanded hot food backstage at all times, and they used some kind of sterno or something that I guess made everybody sick, and everybody had horrible stomach pains from this hot food that Bernie demanded. And then Bernie started getting really sick, and Hook thought, well, he's just being a diva. He's just, you know, let him, he's just, well, he just wants attention. And he ended up going to the hospital for an ulcer. I guess he hated touring that much that he ended up giving himself an ulcer. And they canceled, I think, one of the first and only tour dates they ever canceled in Detroit. And Hook in his book writes that he thinks that this was a real turning point for Summer because he realized the band can't do this without me. You know, like, like they cannot go on stage without me. He really thinks that that's, the moment that gave Bernie like a big head because he realized that, you know, the show couldn't go on without him. Yeah. You know, it's amazing with Sumner because you look at him and he's like not a conventionally good singer. And I think even comparing him to Ian Curtis, who wasn't a great singer, but he had a great sounding voice and he had a wonderful presence about him. It was very distinctive and he could make his voice work perfectly in the framework of Joy Division, where it just evoked the mood so perfectly and Sumner somehow was able to do the same thing in New Order, where there's something about the flatness of his voice that just perfectly conveys something like quintessentially 80s to me. I mean, I think of that movie, you know, American Psycho, where uh, there's, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> there's the same thing in that idea of this flatness of delivery and, and the way that people talk and how that is masking a darkness that is running in the undercurrent of, of the culture at the time. And... Uh, Maybe I'm thinking of that example because, like, true faith is in that movie. There's a scene, like, where Patrick Bateman is dancing to that song. It's just so perfect for, like, what New Order was doing at that time that they could make these great pop songs that always had a subversive edge to them. 
Uh, there was always, like, I think, a deeper darkness in there. I have to say, too, that like I think some of that also comes from the sound of Peter Hook's bass sound. Again, you know, I, I mentioned that at the top, that very trebly melodic bass that he brought to the records, even as they became more of a pop you know, dance band, essentially, you know, he would still kind of force his way onto those tracks. And it's like when I hear that bass sound cut through the mix, it's like, oh, this is New Order. Like, I know it's New Order now. I mean, you're a bass player. I mean, where do you feel like Peter Hook ranks in the annals of great bass players? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like he pioneered like the lead bass part. I I, I think his bass part gives those tracks humanity because I, I tend to like Joy Division more than New Order. For the reasons you just mentioned, there's something very clinical and even though even though it's dancey there's there is a darkness to it that st- does set me on edge and his bass lines kind of like the human element that pokes through uh not only i mean they just incredibly crafted and melodic bass lines that you know it sounds like paul mccartney at his best doing those like elaborate uh sergeant pepper runs and revolver runs on his rickenbacker um but yeah i feel like that's what keeps it tethered in the human range and away from the computers and yeah, I, I think that's the part of, of Joy Division that they were able to most successfully bring over in a new order. And I, you know, I appreciate that the most. It seems like the power struggle between Hook and Sumner, which in a lot of ways, at least musically, seems to be about Hook insisting that his bass be on their records. Like that seems to be like the story of new order albums as they progress in the 80s, like Peter Hook wanting to find a space for himself in these, again, increasingly sequenced and dance oriented records kind of reaches its peak, I think, in 1989 with the album Technique, which I'd love to read like more about the making of this record, because apparently, like New Order, they decamped to Ibiza. I don't know why you would want to work in Ibiza. <laughs> it seems like not a great work environment, because you're in this beautiful setting. You have, like, no. you know, sexy, glamorous people all around you. I'm sure there's, like, lots of great drugs flowing through the island. You, you just want to go to dance clubs, and I think that's what Peter Hook wanted to do. He just, like, wanted to party <laughs> on this island. Uh, but it, it does seem like it did have some sort of artistic payoff for the band because at least Bernard Sumner, like he was going to dance clubs and he was soaking up like the acid house music that was happening uh, on the island at that time. And it seems like that was a big influence on that album technique. But again, you have this thing where Peter Hook is, I think, still kind of valiantly holding on to this old idea of like them playing as a band. And and Sumner, and it's, it seems like the other members of New Order, Stephen Morris and, and Jillian Gilbert, they kind of went more along with Sumner, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, to your point, it's in their best interest that Peter's bass lines were on there, because I think if they had just gone with sequences or synth for the bass line, they would have sounded like every other 80s band. I think that's probably what made them stand out. And yeah, the Ibiza, I think Ibiza was where they got their ideas for the album, but I think in Peter's book he was saying how they didn't actually get a lot of work done. They spent probably like five times the amount of time there, but they only got like, you know, 10% of the album done there. And then they went back to England and actually finished it. Not one of my favorite albums. What, what, what do you think? Something about it just seemed a little too, the veneer was a little too sharp. I don't know. There was something about it that I... I yeah, that, I mean, I can see feeling that way if, because I, I know yeah, you said I that you're more of a Joy much. Division fan. And in a way, I am too. I would probably lean more toward Joy Division, although I love New Order. And I think the argument for technique is that I think that is sort of the ultimate manifestation of like the evolution that Joy Division into New Order had at the end of the 80s. Like that was what they were building up to, that this was going to be a record where I think it's really hard to separate the rock and the dance 
influences, like in the way that you can easily separate it on, on Brotherhood, maybe to that record's detriment, although I like that there's a rock side and a dance side. I think it's a really sort of interesting split, and I think there's great songs on that record. But on technique, it's like fully integrated. And I think when you look at what was going to be happening in British rock in 89 and beyond, you know, like with bands like Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and Primal Scream, you know, all those groups that were going to be, you know, sort of taking rock music in that direction, you have to look at technique as being like a very foundational record of that sort of evolution. I have to say, too, that in a way, I feel like New Order ended with that record because that's when you start to see these side projects come into play. And it, it just seems like them being like a real band, like they're going to come together and, and fall apart over the next couple of decades. But I don't know if it's ever going to be quite the same after this record. Yeah, it sounds like Peter Hook would agree with you. He was saying that they were on tour uh, in 1989 and Bernie basically gave them right before a gig the I want to work with other people talk, which, uh, you know, I think he, he writes, he said he played the irreplaceable frontman card and won the hand. From that moment onwards, we were always wondering what Barney might do next, whether we were surplus to requirements, and it cast a pall of doubt and uncertainty over the whole band from then on. Because, yeah, I mean, he said, you know, we know now that they got back together on, on several other occasions, but at the time it seemed like that could have definitely been the end. And I think it was almost like a Neil Young situation where they wanted to sort of, like, acquiesce to his desires just to sort of keep them yeah there. for sure and and also i mean they're, they're also starting to form their own bands at this point too right i mean because like i think that was a big problem for peter hook that bernard sumner went off and formed electronic with johnny marr i love the fact that uh in peter's book he talks about johnny marr he claims <laughs> that johnny marr wanted to form a band with him first and he said no he's my heart's in new order i don't want to do this and then you know a short while later, he teams up with Bernie. I thought that was a really funny, like, yeah, no, he wanted me first, but but I said, no, I had integrity. I wanted to stay with New Order. And Bernie's the one who wanted to split the band and go off and do this, this other thing. But but yeah, he formed Electronic with, with Johnny Marr. Uh, and I think it also worked with Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys, too. And uh, I I didn't enjoy it for the same reason. I didn't really like Technique, although, I don't know, Get the Message is a good song. And it did huge numbers on both sides of the Atlantic. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it was, a st- I certainly don't like it anywhere near as much as New Order. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's okay. I mean, again, I'm of the opinion that these two guys are great together. Obviously, we have Joy Division and New Order in that column where these guys are working together. And then you have yeah. Electronic. And then you have Peter Hook's band, Revenge, which I feel like, should we just take that band name at face value that he was like sticking it to Bernard <laughs> Sumner by forming his own band. I mean, it seems like that's pretty straightforward there. I mean, he claimed it was he took it from the the word that was on uh, George Michael's leather jacket in the Faith video. But I mean, these band names are very on the nose. I mean, Bernie forming a, an electro band called Electronic, and then Hook forming a rival band called Revenge. Yeah, it seems like they got the name thing down pretty well. Yeah, like if you were making like the biopic about these guys. Uh, you would think, okay, like this is just too obvious. You know, like we're being a little too on the nose by having these be the side projects. But they end up coming back together for the album Republic. And according to Peter Hook, anyway, it seems like this wasn't something that they would have done of their own volition, that they were essentially hustled into the studio because Factory Records and the Hacienda, again, were just hemorrhaging money and they needed a new order record to you know, keep those companies afloat. So they end up working on this record, and it ends up being a pretty miserable experience. 
Right, but it's actually one of my favorite albums of theirs, too. I mean, it's got, I think it was their biggest hit in the U.S., right? It was something like that. It did extremely well. But uh, yeah, this was not something that they would have done on their own volition. Yeah, the song Regret, I think, is one of their best singles. And I think one of the best sounding songs I've ever heard. I mean, just like the mix of that, I think, is so perfect. And again, you have, I think, everything very distinctively New Order on that song. You have uh, this great, uh, you know, Bernard Sumner vocal on there with his guitar playing off of Peter Hook's very melodic bass sound. And uh, the thing about New Order songs, too, that always blows me away is that, like, their choruses are usually just like another verse, you know? Like, it's not just like, it's not a conventional type chorus where maybe you're just singing like a very punchy phrase over and over again. You're just kind of going into like another line and it ends up being like a very wordy chorus, like the way it is on Regret. Like, I would like a place I can call my own, have another conversation on the telephone, all that. It's very similar to, to True Faith and Bizarre Love Triangle. It's a very unique songwriting uh, technique. And it's, again, something that makes it very distinctively New Order. But yeah, even in spite of all that commercial and creative success, they really went into a downturn after that. I think they didn't speak together for something, or didn't speak to one another for something like five years afterwards. They only really got back together in uh, 1998 at the suggestion of their manager. And Hook would later claim that their manager, Rob Gretton, got him and Steve and, and Jillian together first and suggested touring without Bernie. Uh, but then Hook, you know, said he did the stand-up thing and said, no, we're not in the order without Bernie, so go get him. So he, he takes credit for getting the entire band back together. It's, you know, up for debate whether or not that's true. But uh, yeah, they had a uh, it was sort of a honeymoon period. They all got together and tried to iron out their differences beforehand. And recording their uh, 2001 album, Get Ready, went reasonably well. Although I think Hook was really frustrated that, that Bernie really didn't want to tour much. And he also really, really was angry that Bernie would go off and write his own lyrics and vocal parts. Because he, he made a really interesting point. He said, you know, I view recording as a team sport and everybody plays their positions. Bernie sacrifices everything to the song. You know, if, if he has an idea for, for the bass line or this or that, he's going to go in and do it regardless of, he, he doesn't mind getting in there and elbowing people out of the way if he thinks it suits the song, which I think is a very generous read on, you know, it's a nice way of saying that he's a control freak, I guess. I think this can be regarded as somewhat of a honeymoon period for these guys. I know that Peter Hook has talked about how he felt that him and Sumner worked together as well as they had in years on Get Ready. And, you know, he had gone into that project saying that, like, I'm not going to make another New Order record if it's, like, Republic. Because, again, like, that experience was really bad. Apparently, like, the rest of the band had worked on their own for a long time while Sumner was off doing his own thing with Electronic. And then he came in late in the process and basically just kind of redid everything. And it just wasn't them working together as a band. And I think that's what, again, Hook really wanted them to do. And... When you listen to that record, Get Ready, I mean, it does sound like a band record, and it does also sound more like a, a rock record, like the, the big single, Crystal, uh, off that record, which I think is a great song. I mean, that sounds like an alt-rock song inspired by the 90s. You know, like I, I think like Billy Corgan is on that album. Like Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream is on that, is on that album. It's funny, too, because like when you watch the video for, for Crystal, the name of the band that's performing in that video is called The Killers. And that's where The Killers got their name, was from that music video. Yeah, so, it, of course, The Killers being one of the many bands that borrowed a lot from New Order, you know, as they progress in their career. But it's funny to me that, like, one of the sources of tension, like, that sort of spoiled this honeymoon, again, 
was related to the Hacienda. <laughs> it was a, a rare financially canny move on, on Peter Hook's part. Uh, the Hacienda finally closed after, you know, dying a, a long death in 1997. And Peter bought the name rights to it, which he could then license to, you know, compilation albums. I think he actually even licensed it to some a, a, a block of apartment flats that were built on the site. And he said it was all above board, but Bernie made it seem like and, and felt that it was he went behind the band's back and bought the naming rights for this thing that they all sunk so much money into over the years, and then he took it for himself. Peter would say, you know, that's really stupid. I've been going to Hacienda meetings every week for years, and, and Bernie just never cared. I, I was offered the opportunity to buy it, and I did, and, you know, I no regrets about it. But that made it seem like as far as Bernie was concerned, that there was some kind of sneaky double dealing behind his back. And that really spoiled their relationship. I don't think it ever recovered from that, actually. Yeah, I, I think Sumner said that like he lost respect for Peter Hook after that, which seems like a little dramatic to me. Maybe I'm not fully appreciating the stake that they all had in the Hacienda. It, it just seems odd to me that, again, like the goddamn Hacienda <laughs> winds up ruining this band in a way. It's like, why... Do you have so much invested in this in this nightclub? It just seems insane to me. But, you know, I think another thing that was happening at this time is that, you know, they started working on the next New Order record, which was Waiting for the Siren's Call, which didn't come out until 2005. And I alluded to this earlier, but this was a record that they worked on for three years. I think there's something like a half dozen different producers that worked on that record. It just seems like one of those, like, really overcooked, like, superstar band type albums. I, I actually think that there's like some pretty decent songs on that record. I, I I don't know how you feel about that album. Peter would say that they initially started off almost like approaching it as they would a Joy Division project where they would jam together and refine ideas. And it was probably the most band-like album in the beginning that they had made for years. And then uh, Hook would claim at least that Barney would just unilaterally decided that he would go off and again, write all of his, his lyrics and vocal melodies on his own, and that kind of soured the experience for him at that point. And also, Hook's uh, alcoholism at this point was really reaching a, a, an extremely bad state, so that also contributed to uh, a not great studio environment. Yeah, yeah. Peter Hook again being more of the like rock star in the band, essentially. Like, yeah, he was. He's admitted to this that he had like a full blown alcoholic breakdown. You know, during the making of this record, I wonder if to some degree that was fueled just by his frustration over not being able to tour, you know, because I think he just felt probably constrained in this band that we're working on this record. It's taking forever and I can't even go on the road, uh, you know, and be a musician. And that causes him to start this sideline career where he's a celebrity DJ, essentially. And this ends up being like a big thing for him that like he's touring the world spinning records for people. And I guess that was a replacement for being a touring musician at this time. You know, like he wanted to be on the road. So it's like, I can't play with New Order. So I'm going to be a DJ. I'm going to play post-punk songs for for kids in nightclubs. This, this is going to be a great thing for me. And this is another thing that ends up sort of contributing to the deterioration of this band because they're working on the next New Order record, which is Lost Sirens, ends up being the last record with Peter Hook. And according to Bernard Sumner, like they wanted to have Peter Hook come into the studio to play. And Hook was basically like, I can't do it. I'm DJing. So then 
you know, he, he couldn't be around. And, it, and again, it just seemed like that was another thing that just really stuck in Sumner's craw. The best part is that Peter Oak later admitted that when he was DJing, he wasn't actually DJing. He was just playing pre-mixed CDs and then miming, you know, like putting his hands to his headphones and on the turntables and stuff. So, I don't know. Isn't that what every DJ does? I think that's my, you know, I have a conspiracy theory about every DJ they're just playing mix CDs, or they got like a really cool Spotify playlist, and they're and they have they're pretending to play you know cool vinyl, but yeah, they're just they're just chilling back there, scrolling through their Instagram feed. As a long term wedding DJ, I can say you put your your one hand up to your headphone and just kind of bob your head. You're a DJ. There you go. Even if you listen to Spotify. So they do their final tour in South America in late 2006, and for some, their hook is just becoming more and more unbearable. Uh, he just write in his memoir that you know he he refused to, to sit near him on planes. It would just kind of like catch him giving him glares across the stage, and whenever a camera would try to do a close up on Bernie on stage, Hook would like you know walk in front of it and block him. Uh, it was a really rough time, and he would say he would cite that. The fact that Hook got sober as sort of like, he said he turned into a worse person, I think was his quote. Uh, and Hook kind of agreed. He'd say, you know, for years I've been stuffing down all my frustration with, with Bernie, with, with with alcohol and just kind of dulling my senses. Now that I was clean, I'm thinking, you know, I don't have to deal with this. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of Bernie. He said, I, I'm sick of having my heart broken. I was sick of trying to play music and being told to turn it down. I was sick of having the touring experience spoiled by someone who, by his own frequent admission, didn't want to be there. And I was sick of being dictated to in studio sessions. I was just fucking sick of Bernard Sumner. And uh, it all builds up to this, uh, this show in Buenos Aires where he tells the local press, you know, this is probably going to be our last show. And uh, all throughout the tour, that was kind of the, uh, just the feeling. He, he famously he would write messages on his bass cab. And for the last couple dates in the tour, he wrote in a series of messages... Two boys formed a band, then the next date, it all went wrong. Then in the next date, they split. And then for their last gig, the end. And that was really the end of Peter Hook and the band. Yeah, like he does this thing in May 2007 where he announces that they're breaking up without talking to the other guys in the band. And if you listen to this show, you know that this has happened in other bands. You know, this happened in Pink Floyd with Roger Waters. It happened in Talking Heads with David Byrne, and it happened in New Order. And I think it's hilarious that this came out of an interview that Peter Hook was doing promoting his appearance on a record by a band called Satellite Party, which was uh, uh, like one of Perry Farrell's like many side projects. I feel like every ex-musician in a band who left prematurely has ended up in a band with Perry <laughs> Farrell at some point. It's just one of the laws of rock history that, like, if you leave your band prematurely, Perry Farrell's going to, like, blow up your cell phone and be like, hey, man, play on this kind of crappy band I just started. Uh, so anyway, he makes this announcement that New Order is done. And, of course, the other guys in New Order are upset about this. And they're like, no, we're not done. And it ends up becoming this this sort of like war of words between them. And I think like Bernard Summer did he like put out a statement essentially saying like, no, like you're full of it. Like we're still going to do our thing. Yeah, it was very much like the Pink Floyd situation where it was saying like, you don't have the right to end this band. You can leave it and that's fine. You can not work with me, but you can't just say that, that we are not a band anymore because we are. I think that was the argument of who had the right to actually like kill the band. I mean, it seems like in Peter Hook's mind that he felt like it was obvious that they were done. And that's why he felt that he could make this statement publicly because things had devolved to such a point in the band where it didn't seem like anyone really wanted to work together. But I wonder if like 
Sumner and to a lesser extent, you know, Stephen Morris and Julian Gerbert saw an opening here where they're like, well, this guy left. He's the guy that is the loudest, the brashest guy, kind of like the Roger Waters figure, I guess. And he's leaving now. Maybe we can still hold on to this valuable brand name and and move forward. Yeah, Hook would say that the band had agreed to split up in February of 07, and he made – the actual announcement that he made was pretty tame. He said, me and Bernard aren't working together anymore, which is, you know, you can read that, read into that what you will. Uh, so that when uh, Bernard and the rest of the band released these, like, really irate press releases saying, you know, what are you talking about? The band is still together. I guess he called uh, Stephen Morris and said, what are you talking about? We we discussed this. We're not a band anymore. And according to Hook, at least, Stephen said, oh, you know me, Hookie. Whichever way the wind blows, meaning, you know, whichever, whoever's in charge, I'll listen to that guy. So it sounds like, uh, yeah, like what you said, why would you let this incredibly potent brand name uh, go to waste? But weird thing was, they did for a number of years, right? New Order without Hook became Bad Lieutenant for a number of years, which I never really understood because it was basically New Order with uh, Phil Cunningham. And uh, I think Blur's Alex James was on bass for a while. Yeah, I mean, to me, this just seems like, okay, let's just give it a shot. Let's see if we can do something else. And if, you know, maybe people will like it, which, of course, they're not going to like it. Because, you know, New Order at at this point, again, they're this valuable brand. They're a legacy act. If you're going to go see them, you want to hear True Faith. You want to hear Bizarre Love Triangle. You want to hear your favorite hits. You don't want to hear Bernard Sumner and Stephen Morris jamming with a dude from Blur, you know? Like, it's not going to work. And, like, that's why no one remembers Bad Lieutenant. No one has said the words Bad Lieutenant in reference to Bernard Sumner until this podcast. (laughs) You know, it's been a decade since anyone even uttered that reference. So, yeah, to me, it it seems like a foregone conclusion that they were eventually going to try to figure out a way to do this band without Peter Hook, which is what happened. I guess that was in like 2011 or so. Yeah, Hook goes off to form The Light, which pretty much just is a Joy Division New Order's cover band. They're, they famously would go out and play the full albums front to back, which was awesome because it, stuff from Closer had never really been performed live. So that was really great to hear. And they, they put out live albums and EPs and stuff. I think they only did one EP uh, of studio stuff, and that was just Joy Division covers. Uh and uh, I guess that really pissed off uh, Bernie. You know, these were the, the, the sacred Joy Division songs that weren't to be played live. And then uh, Hook was asked about it, and he said, oh, bullshit. Bernard never liked playing the old songs. He thought Joy Division were depressing. Even if I asked him for permission, he would have told me to fuck off anyway. So Hook is very sort of, uh, you know, rebelliously playing these old songs. Meanwhile, New Order reforms with, uh, with Phil Cunningham on bass, and uh, Peter is not happy. He puts out a statement on, I think it's MySpace, where he says he's surprised and sad. Everyone knows that New Order without Peter Hook is like Queen without Freddie Mercury, or I don't know about that. <laughs> you two without The Edge. That, I could see that, actually. Uh, yeah, he, he's very yes, hurt. Yeah, I think that's fair. He's very hurt by this. Yeah, and but again, as we have seen in other examples, certainly with Pink Floyd, not so much with Talking Heads. I mean, Talking Heads without David Byrne, that doesn't really seem to work. But Pink Floyd without Roger Waters, they just rolled forward. And, and New Order without Peter Hook, they rolled forward. They put out a record and uh, I guess that was 2015 called Music Complete that actually did pretty well. And it seems like now in recent years, like Bernard Sumner has been more enthusiastic about touring because they've actually become like a pretty big festival band. So 
which I'm sure on some level must have also been maddening to Peter Hook. Didn't he have a thing that like he was accusing the bass player in New Order of like miming his parts on stage? Oh yeah, he said that like if you listen to what's playing over the, the PA system, you'll see that like his hands are down at the low end of the bass, and then yeah, he, he accused him of that. And then I guess uh, Bernie said something like, you know, no Hook used to do that too. That's just the synth part. It's it's fine. Yeah, I thought that was rich coming from a guy who admitted to miming uh, DJ sets. But uh, but hey, but yeah, Hook said, yeah, you, you still hear my parts at concerts. I'm in the background like a ghost, is his quote. <laughs> I think what really ends up pissing him off is the royalty situation in New Order, because this is always hard to talk about uh, because you get into sort of the Byzantine uh, you know, sideways and byways of like how music contracts work. But essentially... Didn't New Order, like, start a new company without Peter Hook so that they could continue to tour and then, like, just bring Peter Hook's royalty rate down, like, to, like, a minuscule degree? Yeah, it sounds like Hook was entitled to the same royalty rate that he would get for all the New Order songs that he'd contributed to years before. But they formed a new company for all the new stuff going forward without him. And they still cut him in, I think, for 1.25%, which is, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know much about any of this stuff, but it seems pretty generous to give him money for stuff he's not even writing or playing on. But Hook made it seem like they went behind my back and cut me out of this band and formed a company. I think his lawyer used the analogy of, it's like if if uh, Paul and George got together and and decided to form a new company and not tell John. Like, that was how he put it. And he took him to court. Yeah, they ended up making this settlement, I guess, in, in 2017. And, uh, of course, the details were not made public as they never are in these situations. But it seems like while Peter Hook might have gotten, uh, you know, a measure of financial satisfaction, he's, like, more aggrieved than ever. Like, I, I read this interview that he did. I think this was, like, like 2019, like, not that long ago, where he was just talking about how it was unforgivable, like, what – Bernard Sumner did to him that he feels like essentially this band that he helped to start was taken away from him. He doesn't have anything to do with their legacy anymore, and he feels betrayed. His quote was, to start a band in 1980 from the ashes of your lead singer's suicide and then have it cruelly taken off you 31 years later by the other members of the band, I defy any human being not to bear a grudge. If it wasn't for the wife, I'd probably be in prison right now. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I that's you can't argue with much of that. I mean, he has a lot to vent, and he he vents over the course of three memoirs to the tune of fifteen hundred pages. Uh, so I guess that that's his yes. his only real legal yeah. recourse. And it seems like that is where we are right now. That like Hook feels again betrayed, and Sumner, and I guess maybe Stephen Morris and Julian Gilbert. I, is it fair to say that they're probably just feeling relieved? that they don't have to deal with Peter Hook anymore? Yeah, it sounds like that. I think uh, Bernie said in interviews that, you know, being in a band with Peter Hook was not exactly a picnic. So, yeah, it seems like they're, they're probably relieved that, that that firecracker is out of the picture. Yeah, as, and as much as I love Peter Hook, I have to agree that, yes, it would not be a picnic uh, to be in a band with him. And they recently uh, did um, uh, tributes to Ian Curtis for the 40th anniversary of his death, and they couldn't even come together for that. They had two separate tributes with newly reformed New Order and on one side and Peter Hook and the light on the other. Yeah, so I guess at this point, yeah, not even Ian Curtis can like, bring these guys together, which is like a very unfortunate thing. But like I said at the top, like, I feel like a lot of the rivalries that we've talked about have uh, somewhat resolved themselves usually by the end of our episode. But the hatred here between these two guys 
just seems like as white hot as it's ever been. Yeah, I don't think this is going away anytime soon. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. They came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Well, we now reach the part of the episode where we give the pro side uh, of each part of the rivalry. I guess we'll do the Peter Hook side first. You know, again, for me, like I said, I'm a Peter Hook fan. I'm biased in his regard. I think he's a pretty hilarious guy, even though I think it's pretty clear that he's a difficult personality. But again, like for me, I just think his bass sound is like such a distinctive part of this band. And he's a complete original to me. I think if you take him out of the musical mix of this band, they would have maybe been more of like a conventional synth pop band. But because he was in there, he was able to give maybe that rock edge to what they were doing. 
And it just made them more unique and I think ultimately more influential. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that his playing is the hallmark of that band. He's one of my bass playing heroes. I mean, yeah, I think he invented the premise of a lead bass line. I mean, it's not only the heartbeat of the song, but it's the melody. And just as a one of Rock's great raconteurs and personalities, I think he's up there with the Gallaghers and David Crosby, which, again, as much as that makes him entertaining to watch and read, uh, probably makes him a nightmare to actually be in a band with. So if we go to the pro-Sumner side, I mean, I think it's fair to say that his instinct to push the band forward, like away from punk and more toward of like a, like a danceable pop sound, it seems like that instinct was pretty spot on. I mean, like that is what made New Order so huge and I think ultimately like important. I mean, to be fair, like his assessment that being in a band with Peter Hook is no picnic, as we've said, I mean, I think he's probably right. Like it was very difficult to be with this guy, especially again, like where he was wanting them to maybe stay more in the past while Peter Hook was pushing them forward. So yeah, as much as I love Peter Hook, I'd want to hang out with Peter Hook, I think, more than anyone <laughs> anyone else in the band. In a way, I feel like, well, it makes sense that that Bernard Sumner ultimately is the leader of this group. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he was he was the innovator. I think he found a way forward that was definitely unique, but without alienating fans of, of what had come before in Joy Division. And like you said earlier, he just seems like genuinely a good guy. And like his memoir, he talks a lot about like wanting to keep balanced family life with professional life. I don't know. He seems like the most sane member of the group, I would say, too. But he doesn't have Peter Hook's pension for drama. So if we look at these two guys together, I mean, I'll just repeat what I said at the top. I mean, this is the power center of two of the greatest post-punk bands of all time, Joy Division and New Order. Like if you're writing the history of alternative and indie music, you have to write a lot about those two bands. And like these two guys were at the center of, of both of them. And, you know, when they're on their own, you end up with groups like Electronic and Revenge and The Light and Bad Lieutenant, you know, which are not groups that anyone cares about. But you put <laughs> these guys together and you end up with real magic. So for all of the white hot hatred that still exists between these two fellas, together they're just better than they are when they're apart. Yeah, I mean, Hook said that himself uh, a couple of years back in the interview. He said, I've come to the conclusion that it's chemistry that makes you write great music. It's the chemistry that will tear you apart. It's like a relationship. The bit that attracts you is the bit that will drive you apart after a while. And I've come to the conclusion that people who write great music together should not play it. They should give it to somebody else to play. And uh, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> what's happening now, I guess. Yeah, I think he's right. But again, it's never going to happen. I cannot imagine a situation where these two guys... Uh, will ever play music together again. No, absolutely not, which is which is sad. This is probably, I'd say, maybe up there with talking heads in terms of, you know, pigs fly kind of uh, likelihood. Well, Jordan, I hope that love will never tear us <laughs> apart or hatred or whatever the case may Spike be. Because we have so many more rivalries and beefs and feuds to talk about on this show. So hopefully that won't happen because we have just so much more to talk about on this show. So next week, join us again for more... Beefs and feuds and long summer resentments here on Rivals. So long. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstaff. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.